It's The Luminaries with David Odyssey. This time, Jeremy Atherton Lynn talks about his new book, Gay Bar, Why We Went Out. First, thoughts on Katherine Hahn, the new Supergirl casting, Drag Race, the time I got really stoned and saw Mad Max Fury Road with my Uncle Jerry, It's a Sin, and of course, The Lady in the Dale. Thanks for listening, we've got a lot to cover. So it's a very special episode, which we will get into shortly. Naturally, I have some things to catch up on first. Okay, you will all be relieved to know that I finished my rewatch of Angel. Um, It, you know, it's so infuriated me the way that show ended when I watched it when I was in eighth grade. But uh, I hate to say it because I hate when adults tell you that you'll appreciate something when you're older. And by the way, I had a college professor once tell me that I would like I, I would appreciate uh, Michelle Michelle Welbeck when I was older, which I found infuriating because I was I was saying that his characters aren't really characters, that they're misogynist mouthpieces um, and he didn't want to hear that, so he tried to treat me like I was a child. And I, I, anyways, whatever. You're a professor at Emerson. Like, you're not. You're not cool. Okay. Angel ended. Buffy ends. Uh, Buffy is the perfect ending to a hero's journey. Angel ended. Angel is a postmodern show. Uh, it is a show about happy endings never happening, and it is about dreams not coming true. Um, and, and making compromise and, and living with, living with consequences and Angel, Angel stayed true to form until the bitter end. Um, and it, it was bitter, but, but it wasn't snide and it wasn't dreary. You know, I think that the way Game of Thrones ended, those two lovely intellectuals who wrote it, uh, I think they really resented the fans, uh, which I understand they resented that this had become this thing. Um, and, and I think they ended it in a way to spite people. I think a lot of people do that, um, in terms of ending something of saying, this isn't yours, this is mine. Fuck you. Um, and Angel was able to say, we're not going to give you this like perfect ending and it will be dark, but we also, there was a, a larger ethos to it, which is essentially... The world is corrupt, full of compromise. It is dark. It is unforgiving. Um, and in some ways, the apocalypse has already come. But um, every kindness and every act of deviance or defiance does matter. Um, it doesn't matter. Even if it doesn't uh, change the paradigm, it matters. Which, of course, made me think of, you know, one of the greatest shows of all time, Getting On. Um I mean, that cast uh, is just not to be, you know, we have Alex Borstein, we have um, Laurie Metcalf, and we have, of course, the one and only Nisi Nash. Um, And Nisi Nash did win Emmys for it, and she deserves them, and I wish her every happiness. the end of getting on is very similar to the end of angel which is essentially the apocalypse is here um the walls are literally coming down um and the system cannot be beat there's no possibility of beating the system we are trapped in hell but 
And Laurie Metcalf has this line to Alex Borstein. Um, there is no justice, but there is mercy because that is what we can give to each other. <sighs> there is no justice, but there is mercy because that is what we can give to, to each other. So I'm really... Ugh. On that note, I did watch all of It's a Sin this weekend. Um... I was frightened because I watched Cucumber and I Cucumber or Banana or whichever one, um, which is Russell Davies' last show. Russell Davies, of course, you know, he did the original British Queers Folk with Charlie Hunnam. I want to say Charlie Hunnam's like mask for mask thing has got to stop. All of us miss when he was Nicholas Nickleby and when he was getting his ass rimmed on Queers Folk, first of all. Secondly, Russell Davies obviously revamped uh, Doctor Who and brought David Tennant to the lives of many um, straight girl virgins. I'm sorry, it has to be said, but I have been to comic conventions where they have... He wasn't even in the room, but his name was said, and they started ululating, okay? It's, It's a lot. Okay. What am I talking about? Oh, yeah. Cucumber was incredible and it was one of the most traumatic shows I've ever seen about gay life. I could not finish it. I was so, so deeply upset by it, which is not a criticism. I I celebrate it. It's a Sin really, to me, I mean, you know, I'm an HBO girl, but It's a Sin for me, we are in the, we're in a new age where between Veneno and It's a Sin, we are watching um, shows with Big budgets, especially big music budgets, which I actually do do think plays a huge, huge, huge part. And I, of course, uh, Greg Kozatek is listening to this. I do want to say, don't watch Queer as Folk on Netflix. Get the DVDs because Netflix could not afford the music rights. So you are going to be watching like bizarre. uh, You're going to be hearing like Canadian uh, synth pop rather than um, the original millennium era. remixes that define that show veneno and it's a sin to me obviously are created and acted out by queer people which is critical but there's just a a, there's a certain joy in the storytelling that's clearly not for straight people it's for us and I, I, I'm not trying to, to be a purist here because, you know, my favorite movie is Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. That's all acted out by straight men. And obviously I think it's it's triumphant. But there's just, you know, um, when the sweet South Wales boy goes to New York and they're playing Peanut Butter by Gwen Guthrie, it's just like, okay, you know, we're really, the mishpocha is really commanding the ship here. Um and and it just does feel like a quantum leap. Like I just have to say, like if it, I appreciate what shows like Shameless did uh, in their time, but I, this is more rich, and um, it's able to get in the kind of commonality again. As we as I always say, like the reason X Men is good is because everyone is queer. It's not like there's a team of normal people and there's one mutant on it or a team, uh, or a cast of men and there's one woman, or a cast of straight people and there's one queer. Everyone is queer, okay? Um, I really appreciated the Jill character. Um, 
you know, I'm a fan of Sarah Shulman. And I, of course, I did read The Great Believers by Rebecca Mackay. And I actually do think women's, this is crazy that I'm saying this, but this will sound crazy, but straight women's stories around the AIDS crisis actually do need to be told. And Rebecca Mackay got in trouble for appropriation, which I actually think is like outrageous because she wrote a novel about the gay male experience of AIDS in Chicago in the 80s, but also the experience of this woman who was the friend and then caretaker of these men as they died, and then the trauma that she carried with her throughout the rest of her life, which is fascinating. And, like, it's real. Um, so, so I really appreciated the character of Jill. And listen, you know we adore Ali Alexander on this podcast. Uh, ever since I was shown the Take Shelter video in 2014 by a group of gay Israelis, my life has never been the same. I interviewed him. I adore him. I thought he was great. And... Um, the show, I, I just wish it had been longer. Um, but I understand you wish that those people's lives had been longer too. So I get what the gut punch is all about. Um, and I especially love the referendum at the end of the episode. Um, something that, okay, the Sarah Shulman book to read, obviously, and Tommy O'Malley is listening to this and he brought her into my life, of course, is Gentrification of the Mind. And for her, you know, she talks about uh, how 9-11 gentrified AIDS, which is incredible. And a lot of what she woke me up to is this idea that like, yeah, the AIDS crisis isn't just this blip. It it didn't just happen. Um, There were a lot of forces at work that that really actively served as gatekeepers that kept gay people um, and, and all people who are afflicted by the disease from getting any sort of care, justice, uh, or restitution. And I gotta say, this is becoming, this is kind of, all right. A lot of people have reached out to me uh, that, that I know because, you know, I'm from Houston, my family's from Houston, and I'm so grateful for that, uh, because there are always national disaster, natural disasters in Texas, and I tend to dissociate. Um, and thanks to the power of recovery, I actually am able to uh, have empathy towards my family in Houston in a way that I've maybe shut off in the past and really like feel worried and concerned. Everyone's okay, but like, why did my mother not have heat or power or water? Why did my mother have to walk around in rags like one of the grandparents in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory? And... I'm just getting a little sick, um, and I talked about this with Tommy O'Malley yesterday, I'm getting a little sick of this idea that bad things just happen out of the blue, and, well, that was wild, that's that. You know, actually, most bad things that happen, there is an infrastructure uh, that does or could exist, which is able to provide some sort of a container for it so that it doesn't run rampant. For instance, when an outgoing president sets up a um, uh, pandemic preparedness task force and a uh, robust center for disease control, and the incoming president and his cronies um, dismantle them, and then a pandemic occurs, we understand that the pandemic did not just occur. Yes, it came. The pandemic could not be stopped itself, but the effects of the pandemic could be ameliorated. When you live in a contemporary first world society, and we are talking about the wealthiest state in one of the wealthiest states in that society, Texas, and pipes are shattering and freezing for no reason, 
it's not really just a thing that happens. Again, maybe this is a who is responsible, why is there no infrastructure, why is the lack of government so stifling that people are freezing to death in their own homes. But I digress. When Harvey Weinstein is uh, brought down and no other producers, executives, or casting directors or Oscar voters who were not necessarily his cronies, but who were involved in the system and discourse in which his uh, success abounded, when there is no real accounting with them, again, one kind of wonders. Or when, um, you know, a large portion of the current Senate would not admit that Joe Biden had won until January, uh, and we are still going after only Trump and none of them. You know, I'm getting a little annoyed. And I guess I'm just bringing... It's a Sin made me think of that, too, and I loved that last episode of It's a Sin where she was like, you know, where Jill really speaks out. And it's like, you know, this didn't, this isn't, this isn't happened in a blip, okay? Thank you for letting me go off. I did not know I had that in me. It feels good. By the way, Britney Spears. Again, that did not just happen in a blip. We all participated that. And I just want to say, too, I am seeing a burgeoning discourse on Twitter about, hmm, maybe Girls was actually a good show and maybe we shouldn't have, like, bullied Lena Dunham in this uh, quasi, uh, in this circa Great Recession uh, quasi-intellectual reclamation of Hollywood, as if, by the way, by the way, as if the other people who work in Hollywood and who who run writers' rooms on all your favorite shows all grew up living on the wrong side of the tracks and you know had to uh, ha- had to hitchhike their way into a writers' room. No, okay, just because she grew up in Tribeca and by the way, wasn't thin. Uh, does not mean that she is the one who deserves this ire. This is a systematic issue of Hollywood and all of these industries being uh, terrorized by people with no experience in the real world. Okay. So I'm just saying, I'm seeing that discourse happen on Twitter, and I am clearly feeling uh, ready for revenge on whom I don't know. Um, But I just remember when I lived in LA, I had all these people whose husbands worked on the writer's room of like the Hawaii Five-0 reboot on CBS, which was racist and did fire its two Asian cast members when they asked for more money. Um, they would say to me, you know, she she's never worked a day in her life. And I was like, okay, has your husband? Because I think you still do his laundry. Okay. Um, loved It's a Sin. I want to say... If you read Jeremy Atherton Lin's book, uh, he touches on Heaven, which is uh, a location prominently featured on the show and a kind of beautiful hit me with those laser beam sequence. I love this book. I can't wait for you to listen to this interview. I I just, it was such a a pleasure for me. Um, A little more business cover, HBO, Lady and the Dale, uh, docuseries, my roommate got me watching, uh, directed by Zachary Drucker, whom we all loved in Disclosure. Uh, Lady in the Dale is about um, Elizabeth Carmichael, who was a con artist, entrepreneur, trans woman who uh, tried to launch the Dale, which was a uh, environmentally friendly car in the 70s and was taken down by um, a transphobic uh, culture. 
my roommate and I agreed that they need to make this a live action movie and that Macy Rodman needs to play the role. It's just too fucking good. The show is amazing. Um, the other thing I just want to say, I think that Macy Rodman should star in an Ace Ventura reboot. I mean, I think Macy Rodman should star in everything, but I just think she she has this physicality that to me is, I could literally just watch Macy Rodman like, um, like, like peeling carrots. She's so fascinating. And it reminds me of Goldie Hawn, which I gotta say reminds me of a movie that I just watched, which Melissa Rich, previous and future guest, Melissa Rich, um, showed me Smiley Face, starring Anna Ferris, which is directed by Greg Araki, who knew? Um, I am a fan of Greg Araki's. I saw Mysterious Skin when I was in my early 20s. At that point, I think I was more of a Brady Corbett than a Joseph Gordon-Levitt, if you know what I mean. Now the tables have turned. Anyways, um, I did not know that he would do a comedy like this. This is a stoner comedy um, in which Anna Ferris is basically just like an idiot who is blown out of her mind on edibles. It really blew me away. It was so smart and subtle and so not what I, I... I'm so bitter and jaded about comedy movies because I think um, after my golden years, which was the kind of mad TV, drop-dead gorgeous period, um, scary movie period, we then entered this kind of divide uh, during the recession era, which was either these Judd Apatow, quote, intellectual, just sloppy, just men talking movies where nothing happens. And then the kind of viscerality of the physical comedy that I grew up with was something like Not Another Teen Movie, etc., or the Ace Ventura movies, Robin Williams, etc., uh, diverged into this kind of dark, um, these like Will Ferrell movies that are not just physical comedies. They're actually quite violent. Like I, I remember seeing the trailer for Get Hard, with Kevin Hart and I remember like Will Ferrell getting stabbed in it and it just was like what's going it was so much it's so everyone is like vomiting or stabbing um and I wish for I think that now that we've had the pandemic and people are so disgusted by like human viscera we'll go back more to physical humor but um I do think Anna Ferris in that movie, they were able to do these very funny stoner sequences that did not require any sort of like um, over-the-top hijinks. It was really just what happens in the head of someone when they are blown out of their mind. Um, I'm going to tell a little story here. When in 2015, I went with certain family members to go see Mad Max Fury Road. I was given an eatable, uh, which only kicked in in the last 30 minutes, which of course is the most violent section of the entire Goddardamarung. We have cars exploding, people's faces getting peeled off. Okay. Who is going to take Uncle Jerry home after the movie? Here I am. I am stoned out of my mind on the Houston Tron freeway hell world loop. Uh, white knuckling the wheel, certain that we are going to die and we're going to flip over. I have been in a car that flipped over. It's a story involving Pentecostals. We'll talk about it. Uncle Jerry says to me, you know, it's very brave of that Charlize Theron uh, to have such a great career as an actress with one arm. In the miasma of the, uh, of the weed, I was still able to say, 
You know, Uncle Jerry, I don't think she has one arm. I think uh, that was CGI. And he said to me, no, I've read interviews with her. She has one arm. And that's, you know, that's that. You're really not going to top that. Um, What he says goes, frankly. And I did get him home safely. And I think I probably went into supination for six hours after that. Jesus. Um, Catherine Hahn, what is there to say? I obviously called it on this podcast. Don't, don't credit me. I've just been reading the comics since the dawn of time. Obviously she's the villain. Catherine Hahn, you are my soul. Okay. The idea of we are hiring this woman to play like a sexy single rabbi, which by the way, she deserved a spinoff from transparent. That is like, if you're not Jewish and listening to this, let me just tell you, seeing Catherine Hahn play like a sexy single rabbi in Los Angeles on Transparent hit a sweet spot like nothing before and nothing after. I have, that is a Gentile, unlike, we're going to get into it, but unlike the marvelous Mrs. Mizell, that's a Gentile who can really pull off the role. Okay. We love Catherine Hahn. I'm enjoying WandaVision, I'm enjoying the Karenification of every episode of, like, this white lady trying to hang on to the suburbs. Um, Supergirl in the new Flash movie. Apparently there's going to be Supergirl. I'm sure the movie will be bad, but just whatever. Supergirl has been cast. Sasha Kaye, Kelly, uh, first Latina actress to play the role. I adore Batgirl and I adore Supergirl. Um, I thought Melissa Benoist looked great with bangs. I celebrate Laura Vandervoort. Of course... I'm a huge fan of the 1984 Supergirl movie starring Helen Slater and a post-Mommy Dearest Faye Dunaway. In second grade for my sleepover birthday party, we went to Blockbuster to rent a movie and it was my birthday, my choice. I was in a group of eight young boys and I made those boys watch Supergirl. I had the time of my life. They had no idea what they were watching, but I did it. I brainwashed them. This is a movie in which Faye Dunaway plays a polyester-clad witch who lives in an amusement park and tries to just, like, fuck trade and um, kill a blonde girl. It's a high, high, high camp performance. Very enjoyable movie. Total trash. I will say Supergirl, which is a fully bad movie, it's the same plot as Wonder Woman 1984. It's like mysterious relic found uh villain tries to use it to make their wishes come true nothing else happens um you should definitely watch you you don't need to do anything by the way i'm against giving advice since talking to lulu kraus about it advice is wrong unless you pay for it but i i celebrate supergirl i am you know i'm excited i i first of all i i do think not to be one of these people but the marvel movies at this point are basically a uh uh Adolf Hess, uh, no, sorry, Adolf Hitler, and I think uh, Rudolf Hess, whatever, Hess, Hess, okay, the Nazis. We have all of these gorgeous, as my mom said when, when I showed her the trailer for Thor in 2010, she said, wow, he's really goyish looking, isn't he? Um, the DC movies, I do, I will say, are much better at race blind casting, um, and why not? Uh, Hawkman is about to be played by Aldous Hodge, who I would let split me in half. Um, 
Supergirl's a great character. I don't think she's been done the way that I see the character on an intrinsic level. Uh, the idea of Supergirl is that she is Superman's cousin. Superman what landed on Earth as a baby and grew up basically human but different. Supergirl landed on Earth from Krypton at age 17. The idea behind Supergirl is a teenage girl getting to uh, discover a new world. And um, it is about the experience of girlhood. She's not Superwoman. She's Supergirl, and it's about the kind of joy and discovery and excitement of being a girl, which our society does not allow for. And I, I that is a Supergirl movie I would love to see. Uh, in, in terms of Batgirl, Joss Whedon was allegedly going to write that movie, and he couldn't, which I'm just like, yeah, you couldn't, you little scumbag. If, if we want a Batgirl movie, I got it locked and loaded. We can make it low budget. Call me. It's done. Okay, good nug. Um, but I'm, I, I'm, I'm quite pleased about that. Um, and listen, I, I, I can't imagine. What else could I possibly have to say that, that would be interesting for you? Um, this is the last thing. Uranus, planet of change and revolution and awakening, is in Taurus, the planet of personal values, personal resources, wealth, the goddess, fertility. What is Taurus's diametric opposite? Scorpio. Who is a double Scorpio? RuPaul. What show do I not think is going to make it in the Uranus-Taurus age that we are in? Drag Race. I don't I think we are in a time of uh, reclaiming our own inner worth and then in the Aquarian sense, working together to create a new uh, human mosaic. I do not, I I celebrate Drag Race. I've interviewed a lot of those girls. Uh, I've loved it for many years. I can't watch it right now. It's it's killing me. Um, and, And I just don't think, I I don't think in the Aquarian era we're in of new, of freedom uh, and new technology and uh, reclamation of wealth. You know, the last time Uranus was in Taurus, of course, was when FDR was president, invention of welfare, uh, recovery from the depression. I I don't think this idea of signing your soul away to a uh, scorpionic reality show um, where you are under another person's name. Again, what is the opposite of Aquarius? Leo. Um, Leo, uh, it's a very Leo-centric enterprise. I think we're moving out of that. So that's just my thought. Okay. Interview is with Jeremy Atherton Lynn. I hope you enjoy it. I loved the book um, and the interview is going to open with a passage from the book. So thanks for listening. Mwah. Mother's Day is almost here and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around. A watch she can wear every day from Movement. Whether your mom is into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, Movement has something she'll love. And right now, everything at Movement is up to 50% off site-wide during their Mother's Day sale. A watch is a gift that celebrates all the time you spent with mom. And a Movement watch is even more than that. Movement uses industry-leading materials for their fresh modern watch designs, from technically complex ceramics to vintage-inspired style all for an incredible value your wrist and wallet will both love. And with one-size-fits-all convenience and fast free shipping and returns, it's a stress-free shopping experience. Save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with Movement. Get up to 50% off site-wide during their Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off 
at mvmt.com. The commonality I experienced in the G&D, or in any given bar, is tenuous and fleeting. The staff will be intimately familiar with one another, of course, but what they serve to the rest of us, even the barflies, is the opposite of routine. Gay bars require strangers, a constant influx of immigrants, whose presence foreshadows the next morning's regret. A gay bar is the idea that you may end up going home with the first hot guy you see. Then every drink is dopamine, as you determine whether it is him or the next guy you'll see. Gays can relax in a gay bar, people will say, but I went out for the tension in the room. Perhaps you could call a gay bar a galaxy. We are held together, but kept from colliding by a fine balance of momentum and gravity. I miss, more than any notion of community, the orbiting. Okay, thank you for doing that. Um, Pleasure. I just, I kind of wanted to just set the stage with that because okay. I feel like, okay, <laughs> the book, to me, what I loved about the book is just, you are describing something so liminal, so intangible. And mm. I loved this passage because, and you mentioned the idea of entropy uh, at another point in the book too. Like, mm. I love this idea of this, there is, this is not a fixed thing we're talking about. Um, and, and not just the gay bar, but like the gay community or the gay identity. And like, I've just been, while I've been reading the book, I've, I've just been thinking like how difficult of a task uh, you set out for yourself in a lot of ways because mm. you're talking about this thing that kind of can never be and never was but always was and is so essential like I, I just I don't know it just made me think about how much of like what I know of myself as a queer person is not at all defined or fixed and is totally relative mm. and unstable and um yeah, I, I, that's not a question. I guess I'm just curious, like in the writing of this, if it was difficult to sum up those kind of more abstract ideas or liminal descriptions of what this thing is. Yeah, totally. I mean, I guess that's why it takes place over such a long period of time, because as, as you say, that changes, you know? And I think maybe... <sighs> It's funny because I was I was speaking with somebody a few days ago who was like is such it was was being so supportive of the book and was saying like I hope you take this in the best possible way but there are these passages where you come across as kind of snobby and I think that those are really like when I'm younger and I'm kind of like um pulling against like the kind of prescribed gay identity or gay aesthetic even that is like being presented to me and kind of like reacting against that that I had there and and I think and you know and I and I, and I totally lean into that because there, there are writers that there's a British writer I like for instance <clears throat> called Denton Welch who who writes a lot from a position of like a sort of 12 13 year old boy very precocious and like totally judgmental like kind of makes these like horrible judgments about the perfume choice of a, the adults around him and stuff like that. But it's like, you know, it makes that person real because they're processing things as they go through and, ca you know, part of that is like making judgments or whatever. So, um, so I suppose what I'm saying is, <clears throat> I think that's the reason why I, 
why it, I, why it worked for me that it was set over a long period of time because I think, um, yeah, my relationship with identity changes over the course of the different years or through the different bars. Like sometimes I'm pulling against it. Sometimes I'm like reverting to type or, 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 or you know, or sort of ironically um, reverting to, to type, um, to an archetype. And sometimes I think what happens for me, I think, is a lot of forgiveness. I think a lot of the things that I kind of um, struggled with, okay, that I found alienating about gay identity um, are forgiven in various ways throughout the book, for, you know, because, well, for instance, the shadow of AIDS really uh, dominated um, the expectation of, of how gays present themselves. Um, different political, uh, you know, political movement, political access even, um, required sort of um, a kind of anodyne gay identity in some some situations that I might've found frustrating and not rebellious or sexual and whatever, whatever it might be that I've traveled through in the book. I think there's a, there's a sense of kind of understanding that in the moment, it's so easy to feel a kind of discomfort with, with identity, but that time is bigger than us and shows us how we're like just this piece of, you know what I mean? And like our perceptions are important, but they're important because they have to do with like this whole cosmology. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I love what you're saying about the judgment thing too, because I, I love how the book starts with you learning a lot of the kind of rules um, and a lot of the ways that one is to behave in this kind of ecosystem. And then I feel like, um, and, and that's when you're kind of just emerging and just kind of being thrown in. And then the book ends uh, with a new, uh, like you're kind of in a new domain where um, mm. younger generations are now calling for these spaces to be more inclusive, obviously. Mm. Um and they're now becoming more mixed. Um, you know, they're now being occupied in a lot of ways by straight people. And it, it I like the final chapters. You're also, it, it seems like there's a sense of surprise there, or a sense of like, oh, this thing is changing again. Like, mm -hmm. I, I do like that there isn't that long of a period in the book where you feel, or at least where it seems like um, your place is super secure. Like, oh, it yeah, seems totally. like I you're agree. constantly in this state of flux too. I agree. I think there's this, I think there's a scene on the dance floor uh, in San Francisco uh, at this night called Tube Steak Connection. I don't know if you've ever been where there is this moment of like, I fit in kind of feeling. And that's maybe one of the sort of few moments where you, where you have that, but it's like, that's that there's a realness to that too, right? Or a kind of like, that ha that happens in a moment, even if you're convincing yourself of that. And 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 I and I suppose on that dance floor for a couple of songs, but also maybe for a couple of years in the book, really, that I had that feeling. But yeah, I agree. It's like, you know, in the in the in the early in the like when I'm coming out in LA or whatever, it's like I'm being dragged out, like I'm being taken out. I think we I think we expect people to have this kind of agency that maybe they don't feel themselves. I didn't, I mean, I maybe still don't like, you know what I mean? Like I'm not, yes. um, I'm not completely, sometimes I make a decision impulsively or sometimes I make a, I go along with something or, you know, like sometimes I, bo I bottom socially basically is what I'm saying, you know what I mean? And I kind of like, what if somebody wants to be like an aggressive top with me and like, 
project onto me the kind of like the reading that they have of me in that given moment, like I can kind of go with it or or react against it, whatever it may be like, we don't exist in isolation. So I think that that's what, it, what, that, what that's about is that I think maybe we're, we're used to voices who, self-presentation is the kind of, they seem so self-contained in their self-presentation and resolved. And I never felt like that as a per. you know, I always kind of felt like, a bit um, like I could be influenced. I could be, in, you know, I mean, I loved bad influences when I was a kid, like that two years older than me girl who just like mm. was like a valley girl, well, you know, in my generation, like a valley girl and like chomped on gum and like, you know, um, whatever. And they would, they would identify me as this like person that they could make into their whatever it would maybe like Barbie doll or sex toy or like whatever, you know, and like, that's just a part of life. We don't, we're not necessarily totally fully formed. You're making me think like, I, I was born in 1990. So um, mm -hmm. I grew up in like, certainly, I grew up definitely in a decade that was very much about teen culture. So like when I was growing up, I just wanted to be a teenager. And then when I became, not when I became gay, when I started going out into the gay world and the gay ecosystem, it was very much just like in this shadow of of uh, after the AIDS crisis and this kind of like, it was in a bit of a transition stage. And I feel like now with social media, with the internet, et cetera, I do feel like uh, the younger generations have a lot more maybe agency or a lot more kind of of their own uh communality um and i don't know i'm just curious like if not if they need the previous generations in the same way but um maybe it's possible that they just create a new kind of queer world and queer scene uh and they're separate like i just feel like when i was coming mm. out I had to go into this existing scene and like mm. play by the rules. And I just wonder if that's as necessary anymore. And by the way, if this is the sort of like boring question that you're getting a lot about, like what's the state no. of gay life in America or whatever, you do not need to answer. No, no, I see what you're saying, but also it's the internet, right? It just like, you have so many different possibilities, which by the way, I used to have that delight poster that I oh see God. behind you on the wall. <laughs> it's so good. It, it's, it's like just, pure joy yeah yeah it's got a lot of joy i mean i think yeah i okay so that era of delight okay so let me i'll tell you about world click I, yeah um so i was um and i guess my last year of high school and when world click came out and we went to um to, up to san francisco from the silicon valley to see delight play and there were like there were drag queens in the box but it, but that moment was very um it's funny because obviously at the time it felt so far away from like the summer of love hippie era but like it still was bleeding into and then like delight i mean it was retro but also just also a continuum i think sometimes when we look back we think things are all like a movement and then retro, but like there is like, especially in San Francisco anyway, where it's so slow, there's like a continuum. So there are these <laughs> drag queens there, which are like, you know, like kind of 
hip like wing like wearing wings and stuff like that. I mean, I was so I was pee shy in the bathroom. I remember because I was like next to a, um, you know, like a tower, like somebody in platforms, you know. Um, and then I do have to I do have to brag, but I can't brag because I don't think I have the object, but. I went out, we went out and waited at the stage door for Delight to come out and I was wearing a plain white t-shirt and I have somewhere, I should have a t-shirt that Lady Kier signed. Ooh, la, it says, I think it says Jeremy, ooh la 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 la, uh, <laughs> Lady Kier. Um, anyway, but that, I guess, in a, started, I guess it's sort of in a roundabout way that answered the question. Oh, just because I think, yeah. I don't know, things fold on themselves. Do I think that queers near, need queer elders? Yeah, I kind of, I sort of kind of do. Maybe that's a sort of old fashioned feeling, but it's just like, just like anybody needs any, just like all, everybody needs older friends. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, I think, you know, it's just like, you know, there, I live at the, on the edge of a park and during lockdown, you know, there's a kind of a thing in the UK where there was um, raves, like illegal raves or whatever. And, you know, it's like, I feel, boy, do I feel for like a 19 year old during lockdown. Like that's just like, I, that year being robbed for them is like so pain. It's like a, you know, a limb being robbed from you, you know, but the, but, but the raves at the same time, it's like, I'm old enough where I was just a bit like, mm, it's kind of ageist, you know, I'm not gonna rave shame anybody. I'm not like into shame as a tactic, but um, it, it's, 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 it was interesting to, for me to see. And I remember there was like a rainbow flag chalked on the, on, the, on the sidewalk. And I was like, yeah, but like that rainbow includes like people in your community who are older, who are HIV positive or are just vulnerable in whatever number of ways that you might be interacting with later in your, the day or the week or whatever like that. So whatever, I'm not rave, rave shaming. I'm just saying like, I, I'm into like, uh, yeah, respecting, <laughs> respecting the aged <laughs> and the vulnerable. Yeah, I, I, you know, you have this amazing, uh, uh, I'm, I'm gonna quote, uh, you, you talk about Gail Rubin has this uh, line where she says, uh, part of the reason for our impaired memory of the older strata of uh, queer knowledges is that the institutions and organizations that produce them are gone. Queer life is full of examples um, of fabulous explosions that left little or no detectable trace. And then you write, the question is whether the spark is extinguished when an official story is made of the blast. Um, and I just I like, yeah, continue. Sorry. No, you go, you go. No, I just, I thought that summed up a lot of this um, constant, like, state of amnesia that I feel yeah. like I live in, uh, and this constant state of, like, going from inherited trauma to feeling like I'm at the brink of a new queer life or whatever. Sure. To being in a total state of, like, delirium and amnesia, not even understanding, you know, th this, sure. like bungee between the cultural gaslighting of growing up after the AIDS crisis or yeah. probably during the AIDS crisis in which like it just was erased yeah. and then this constant idea of like this is the big bang like this is queer life we finally right. arrived this is it yeah. and this sense of like all of this constant silent loss that isn't really explained I just thought that summed it up so well 
And also, I mean, in that passage as well, like the kind of key word for me, I suppose, or like the em emphasized word is an official um, story is made. Because mm -hmm. in that in the context there, I'm talking about sort of what it takes to, to preserve a building, for instance, to preserve a gay bar um, historically, to have it listed, to like all that thing, all that stuff that involves in institutionalizing um, and, and, and institutionalizing it means to some extent writing an official narrative and the narrative that gets put in the archive or whatever like that. And I think that's the, a really important thing for me is like, f you know, for, you know, in terms of gay bars, I think there is no grand narrative. Like, I think there's yes. no gay bar common era. Like I never try to um, describe what the first gay bar ever is because it depends on how far you want to go back or what you qualify. And, and I think, you know, I mean, there's been a couple of, I've sort of heard repeated back to me that I've written the cultural history of gay bars or like, and even like a definitive cultural history of gay bars, which is like not at all my what my ambition was. And, but the thing that kind of amuses me is that if anybody was to take it that way, it would just be like such the wrong version because the bars that I mentioned are ones that like most people have never heard of. I just happened to live near. I mean, yes, there was iconic bars in there. But it was like, it's so it's sort of democratized, you know what I mean? Like there are places where I'm like, I know that this would have been like forgotten about or just only a few, this is a meaningful to a, a relatively small group of people. But that kind of locality is important, I think. And I think it's so important now that we're all like in this universal internet sphere where it, everything is supposed to like feel the same. But it's like, of course it's a game. My experience is gonna be completely different than somebody who grew up in Athens, Georgia, mm. which where apparently they're supposed to be a bar that's themed on church like it's got a church theme and everything's like jesus paraphernalia and stuff like that and it, you know and there and that that's and that's another thing too is that right somebody else might have done a book where they like went and visited a place like that and which i wanted to actually but um but that wasn't that wasn't what i wrote either what i wrote was like about how the places that i hung out yeah <sighs> Actually, that aspect of it, I found really reassuring because I was talking with a friend of mine and I was like, okay, you have to read this. And he was like, is it going to make me sad because we can't be going out as much during this pandemic? And I, I actually, and because so many bars are closing during the pandemic. And I actually said to him like, oh, the book is making me feel a little bit more reassured because I'm realizing how constant the state of flux has been around all of these places like totally when i was reading the book i was like god none of these places can just sit still and be one thing for like yes. five minutes there's constantly like then the mob took over then they they closed the windows then there was no touching allowed then yes. there was touching allowed then it was only for lesbians then straight people took it back like that i i found that aspect of like oh there's this constant like big bang happening and there is no mm. fixed location um oh, I, I found that comforting yeah definitely i mean i was like like two things happened to, like one thing happened today is that like i got a, i got an amazing review by colm toybin in the the guardian and he was like slay. towards the end he was like sorry slay <laughs> yeah 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 i yeah what an honor i mean it's great for people like i just whatever um it's so nice for people to be reading the book and and but and like and he was like um, he says this thing about how then this one section of the book where like a few of my favorite bars are closing down and it kind of makes me a citizen. 
Like it makes me feel connected to the city in a way that I hadn't before because like I have the right to nostalgia and I have the right to have been through a moment. And it's like, that's not begrudging. Like I don't wish upon a, a place that means something to people to, to um, you know, to close, but it's a, he w- it was so perspicacious of him where he was kind of picking up on like what it is to mature as the things around you are changing. And like, as you say, like a lot of the places that I revisit in the book, I mean, a lot of the places that I revisit in the book were really banal experiences at the time or disappointing experiences. That I, and then the history of before me is crazy, um, wild. And then, but it's like, but you know, then I had another, um, Another thing where I was I was like being interviewed by somebody who was quite young today and was saying about how those bars that I was saying that had closed down had meant so much to him, just reading about them in magazines and stuff. Ooh, and he had just kind of missed that moment. So he had come into the city um, a little, you know, like probably around the time I was moving out of that neighborhood and those bars were closing and he didn't get it. And then he was like, and then he was saying he did work at the straight pub around the, um, around the corner. And I was like, but that straight pub actually does have a queer history. It has like several layers of queer histories as well. So it's like, I guess it's that moment where you're like, well, what I'm looking for is maybe right. Or it's not even right in front of your eyes, but it's like, it transcends time. And it's also maybe not what you expected, I suppose. Yeah, it's, um, I I felt really, I've, this is bringing up a lot of ambivalence I've felt Hmm. since President Obama made, uh, sorry, former President Obama made um, the Stonewall a national monument, which is, Mm -hmm. it's amazing. And, you know, I've been to so many rallies, protests and celebrations there. I'm so grateful for that. But there is just this weird thing where I'm like, oh, now, like, father has said that this place has to be this thing. Mm-hmm. And it it makes it feel, like, trapped or frozen in time in this bizarre way where I'm like, I wouldn't want to go. It makes it feel, like, less sexy because now it's less, like, it feels less deviant, less liminal, and less ambiguous like i can't make it yeah. my own in some ways maybe oh, totally yeah i mean it's like i mean it, it's weird that okay somebody somebody i i heard somebody i i over well, i had not overheard i listened to a podcast where my book was being discussed and um somebody had a gripe which was that they were di- they were disappointed that they were disappointed that I put an emphasis on the book of gay bars as a place that you go to get laid. And he was like, it's so much like more than that. It's a community space and all, you know, and that this kind of stuff. And I was kind of, and I was thinking, well, but you know what, like that is why you go to, I mean, it is one of the reasons why you go to a gay bar. And actually that's like, very, I, I think it's a bit worrying that, Whatever. I mean, this guy has, you know, everybody has their own experiences, and and I don't, I don't, I don't want to, um, you know, dis, you know, disregard his. But I, I'm just saying, for me, it's a bit like I don't necessarily want to it, that my this this version or this area of my identity is about sexuality. 
Mm-hmm. And it's 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 strange to me that like it's sort of only okay if it's sort of anodyne and desexualized and cleaned up and and putting its best foot forward or whatever it may be or like or even just like still a little bit like fun and sexy but utopian. It's just not. It's just like it's just not. It's like, but uh, yeah. So that was interesting because because I was thinking oh. He was sort of saying the the version of the book that he wanted to read that didn't have that. And I was like, do you really want to read that one that doesn't have the, you know, doesn't have the the, the making no, out on the actually, dance? Actually, anyway, t- to be honest, I have gotten many of those kinds of books, which are more of these kind of histories, which are great, but I yeah. don't get through them. Right. <laughs> um, yeah. And, you know, your book does make the point that, like, uh, money is a part of this. So I think, yeah. like, yes, yeah, sex and money are are these forces that kind of bind this experience together for good or mm. for evil. And I do think, yeah, this, like, purely utopian idea, mm. it, I don't know. I, I, it's a little bit deceptive to me. Like, I maybe that's also, maybe this is something that, like, mm. the, the children of the Aquarian era can can transform and I, mm. I have faith in that but to me yes the sex aspect is it keeps it like real or honest to me i don't feel i don't feel like i'm being deceived by some sort of a transformational marketing uh thing yeah and and also it's just like we don't we don't necessarily compartmentalize our lives like that and so that and so and so i just kind of don't in my writing. And I mean, it's interesting to me because it's like, um, there's enough history in the book because I just sort of am curious that I get asked to do like academic lectures. And then it makes me reevaluate like, oh, you know, right after this, you know, right after I go to, to into the, you know, 17th century, then I'm like, it's like, you know, rimming or whatever, it's not, but you know, like whatever transition might be there where, and I realized that, yeah, I guess it, we do kind of compartmentalize those and I have to, and then I have to, to compartmentalize the book that I that I didn't write in a compartmentalized way. But I have a question for you, but did you used to go to Stonewall? No, uh, no, really no, honestly. I love Julius, like Julius yeah. to me, I'll do anything. And I know that that sounds so ridiculous because mm. um, it's so similar, but, no, I, my there's, friends in New York are the same. Yeah, there's just, there's just, and, and I, I love the duplex. I perform there. I love it there. But mm. there's just this thing with the stone wall where like, yeah, I, I, I would not have been there. Um, mm. Yeah. And so you weren't going there anyway. So, so then, so then that raises another question where it's like, then when Obama, see, that's totally the, the question is like, then when Obama makes it into a national monument, it is like this moment of ambivalence and like kind of cringing and trying to figure it out. But then at the same time, it's like, it wasn't where you hang, hung out anyway. Do you know what I mean? So it's like right. that. It is just it is just kind of, I don't know, sort of a plaque to you maybe or to somebody. I don't know, but I mean, I don't know. I, I, I have to, I'll admit something to you that I've never admitted, I don't think, <laughs> to anyone. <laughs> outside of my flat but i i can't i don't i'm not sure if i've been to stonewall or not yeah i think you i went to new because when i started writing this book my dad was like i've been to a gay bar with you in new york and i and i was thinking all right well i guess 
I was trying to think of when I went to New York with um, my dad and who who I would have, you know, who would have been our tour guide, who would have been my friends who lived in New York, who would have been our tour guides and whatever. And so it's totally feasible that we did. Yeah. But but it but it's also could have been Julius's. Um, it could have, I don't know. But I think that but I think that's like those kinds of questions for me, I guess that's what I'm saying. Is like our individual experiences aren't really monument, like they're not monumental in the grand narrative way. Like the monument to me, like for instance, the monument to me on that trip was when my dad was back at the hotel and I went to Tunnel. Um, I think it was, which was like the club kid scene at the time. And it was like Richie Rich. And it was like before, before that, before like sort of the violence happened that kind of broke that, that scene up. But it was like, that was just like mind blowing, you know, because the, the, the androgyny and the inflection of superhero aesthetics and like it was very mm -hmm. delight as well. And like everything, you know, all the energy. And it's like, I, you know, so yeah. That's what I remember. Yeah, and I guess that just, I I think this brings up like my own, I'm just having bigger questions generally about like our own visibility because I, for me, I always feel like big visibility for us is in some ways a kiss of death where I'm like, oh no, now they've like, now they've discovered us or like, mm -hmm. to me, what I loved or, or what I was reading for myself in the book was like, oh yeah, these kind of, um transitional deviant dark room back room spaces mm -hmm. that are literally not visible you can't see mm -hmm. are so essential when you are now having like a gay politician or a gay celebrity or something that like mm. straight people can identify because i guess i i'm like oh this was supposed to be my life that like my family can't know about or that um, mm -hmm. the straight people I grew up can't know about. And now that a lot of gay life is so public and mm. is so like visible for them or discoverable for them, I'm understanding like how much of that like dark womb interregnum mm -hmm. space is essential. And that space itself can't be, it's hard to like fight for that or describe mm. it or like legislate for it because the point of it is that it's unseeable and unknowable and that it's this strange back room. Like I love when you're talking about going to Blackpool and they're talking about um, this back room in a hotel because that's where you should go because it's, you really can't see. And it's like, yeah, yeah how would you, how would you even know about that? You know, and that's what's so special about it, but it's mm. so incidental and unknowable, you know? I mean, I don't know if how much of a difference there is. It totally depends still on the family and the where you grow up and all that kind of stuff. But I was like, you know, I when I grew up, you, I was tacitly instructed to lie about mm. who I was, and that the socially acceptable thing to do was to sort of at the very least perform. And that at the and at, or just flat out deceive about like what where my life was going to go, what kind of you know about my sexuality, about my burgeoning sexuality, and it's like such a crazy thing that it okay. So if we want to talk about like uh, gay identity as a you know if we want to talk about gay identity, it's like you have a lot of people who spent their youth lying in a way or no okay. I'm not going to say lying. I'm going to say performing. Mm. So, or, or trying to figure out if they weren't performing, trying to figure out what 
how to deal with the expectation that's put about on them and, and their own and their desire, what that that friction is. So I suppose what I'm saying is like, okay, you know, I don't want to say we come from a we come from a um, adolescence of deceit, but I do want to say we come from an you know, a lot of us come from an adolescence of the the our perceptions of what is real or what is authentic or what is like wh what face you want to put forward all, and all that stuff is and and joyfully so problematized so even though that was a painful experience when we were young as we're as we're as we become adults or as we, we like we don't ha we haven't figured we haven't been convinced that we'd had it figured out since whenever like we it was always a struggle and like that struggle is like where I think a lot of the humor of gay identity comes from and the play, the role playing and the, um, you know, and, and all sorts of things that, and, and not taking things for granted, I suppose what I'm saying. So that you're, mm -hmm. so that identity can be a performance, but that is just a part of the, the joy. That's just a part of your reality, meeting other people's realities. Um, so where, how did we get started about this? I'm not sure. Um, <laughs> I, you know, I'm just thinking, yeah, yeah, sorry. I, I, I'm just thinking about like, I remember I saw, I saw the Scissor Sisters at the New Yorker Festival in like 2010. And I remember Jake Shears said that after their biggest, their biggest album at that point to date, Tada, he yeah. like went to Germany for many months. And he, I remember the quote, he said, I wanted to be anonymous. Yeah. And that to me, is so for uh, that's a lot of the allure of like this life is this idea of going to a gay bathhouse no one knows my name no yes. one ever needs to know my name and having yeah. sex and that's it like that to me and that I, I i don't know if it's under threat but it's it's like it's a piece of the puzzle for me and it's weird as visibility rises up how that maybe is compromised i don't know oh yeah we had a um I had that kind of like a bit of a regular thing with somebody who, I don't know if you've ever had this before, but they were like, he wanted, he wanted to come in, he wanted the front door to be left op un open and the, the blinds to be drawn. And he wanted to like come in and like, basically kind of invade the space and for there to be no words exchanged and all of this kind of stuff. And like, whatever, mm. it was like, you know, I mean, I think, it's hard because I think one thing, and I kind of touch on this towards the end, like, you know, kind of, kind of quite gingerly, but one thing is that you feel a certain amount of, well, we all take, you know, I, I have taken risks sexually, but you do feel a certain about, about a certain amount more of safety, I suppose, in a male body, in a like, you know, but, but at the yeah. same time, you know, you don't, I mean, male rape is underreported. I don't know, whatever. Like what I'm saying is anonymity yeah. can be, yeah, like hot. And the other thing too about identity also is that I think that the subtitle of my book is like very, well, the subtitle of my book is why we went out. And I think the we in that is like, it's kind of a bit of a, of a ruse like I know I'm sure there's going to be some response where people are like that's not I you know you don't speak for me like that wasn't my experience like I don't you know have three ways or take crystal met or like whatever I've done in the mm. book that that you know like that you know don't speak on behalf of you know um 
all gay men, but it's very much about the fact that I realized that I can't, and that we that that we in the book is, is and that 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 why we went out always remains a question, and that and that part of the question is who who is we, and 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 very for me very much it is just like my partner or myself or a small gang of friends or all that 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 kind of thing. But yeah, it's going to be interesting to see if anybody sort of I don't know gets annoyed by by that. Um. I wanted, there's a passage I loved. Um, it's on page 106, um, where you're talking about this movie called Beautiful Thing. Um, and it goes, um, it, it's talking about this yeah. movie where these two gay lovers, you know, these two young gay lovers fall in love and they leave the kind of sleazy world of the gay bars that they knew. Uh, I wrote this quote down. The viewer wishes the boys can mm. uh, stay forever young, never becoming the lecherous rubicund men in the bar, let alone the drag queen. Um, and then mm. you write, uh, it must be a gay rite of passage to be in it intimated even repulsed by other gays one potential reading of this new gay liberation to be liberated from gay um and i loved that because like the day that i even read that passage i remember i was on scruff and i often have this feeling like when i'm on grinder or, or, or scruff and i'll see a much older gay man and i'm like oh god what is he still doing here like mm -hmm. if i am on this at this age like i hope that someone takes me out and shoots me like I, and i have also felt that in gay bars which is this idea of like well i'm not really like in i'm not really here like i'm just this mm -hmm. isn't it for me like actually my destiny is much more romantic but then on the inverse like that aspect of like keeping that aspect of it being not necessarily shameful, but just kind of like gauche or like mm. ugh, kind of tacky, I think makes it makes the experience kind of special because then it's not something that can be like lauded or celebrated. Like, oh, yeah. I don't know that that passage made me think about like how awful it is and also how lovely that awfulness is. And it was such a particular moment in time, too, where it's like, I don't know. Did you ever have like, did you ever have a mo afraid of um, like a kind of a, a period where you kind of felt like you were gay for your girlfriends or like you were like, like the kind of gay that they liked because yes. you weren't yes. necessarily a part of a tribe, but you were just like their gay friend? You know what I mean? So that so that you're so that you're and I think for me that was a kind of a, a, a real like I don't know, it's easy to kind of see yourself, I don't know know how to put it like fondly othered like you're not being othered because you're you're not being sort of like fetishized in like some kind of like i'm i'm I, I, what i'm saying is i have no judgment against this i'm just saying you you see yourself being perceived as like this cute this cute boy who happens to be gay and like isn't yes. like kind of like the cliche the cliche gay you know and like and then and i think that's another and 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 I think a lot of us, and it probably changes a little bit from between generations, but kind of leaned into it. And it was like, oh yeah, mm -hmm. like I am like scruffy and listen to indie music and ride a skateboard. And like all these things are like, maybe aren't the first thing that comes to your mind when 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 you think of gay. And then, and then you just start realizing like, I don't know. I mean, I just like became less homophobic. Yes. You know, as I grew older, I was like less, you know, and I think there are moments as I, as I, grew, there are moments when I grew older where I'm like, I found other boys who also like whatever 
had a skateboard or whatever like stupid thing and but then also just that that I just became if if things seemed like they were a bit more of a cliche gay identity I just like whatever I got over and and they bleed because all of these things they bleed don't they they're not like yeah um I I was in Provincetown this summer and there was like some sort of like a leather celebration or something but it was like during the pandemic and it was just a weird timing so there wasn't that big of like a a group and it was just this small group of uh elders with their like nipple clamps and their harnesses and yeah i do think like a younger form of me and maybe a part of me that was still there that was feeling a little bit homophobic was like oh this is so tacky so gauche blah 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 but then I am understanding actually like, oh no, they actually embrace this thing. They're not caught in this fantasy of like, I'm just stopping by in this world. You know, I'm awaiting this more kind of classic uh, love or or acceptance that's gonna liberate me from this. Yeah, you're you're right. It is about kind of inner homophobia. And also, I I mean, I love what you're saying about kind of like who, who inhabits their costume permanently, more permanently than not. Like, you know, some of those guys, they yeah. are probably like, they're leather daddies all the time, or they they like work at a piercing shop. They're like, whatever they do has to be like led by that. I've always been really fascinated by that because I'm just like quite a plainly dressed person who is like pretty adaptive. Like I can pretty easily be adapt to a different situation or have something like let something be projected onto me rather than like, you know, I mean, I remember when I was in San Francisco around the time of the San Francisco chapters in my book, it was like really retro. And mm. I'm not talking about like queer culture necessarily or even at all, but like like rockabilly. Like there was such a rockabilly thing in San Francisco at that time. And it was like, mm. they, they had, they wrote, they drove classic cars and the boys had rolled up jeans and the girls had like poodle skirts and there was like, their hair was done up in a bandana and all this stuff. And it was like, so fascinating to me. Cause I was like, does it ever turn off? Like I, I kept thinking, do they drink spirulina smoothies? Because that would be like, so whatever it was, 2002, or do they only just exist? You know, do do they watch, do they have a laptop or do they only like listen to, a, you know, a radio, you know? Totally, totally. Um, then, well, then this is, uh, to me, this is like the the other side of this. Maybe it's not related. I love the use of the word clone in the book. You describe clones, and I'm wondering if you can describe what a clone is um, Mm. broadly. I mean, I think, oh my gosh. (laughs) I don't know whether- um, I can give my interpretation too, but yeah. Yes, please, please. I felt like clones are the kind of like, the sterilized um, mass of gay men who are able to like fully fit into um, the kind of like popular pornographic Mm. like body image, um, but who have like no identity. Mm -hmm. But that's obviously very broad. I'm just wondering if if maybe it's more than that. But I, yeah, yeah. But I do like the aesthetic. Me too. <laughs> and I don't yeah, think. Me too. I mean, I don't. You know, I think. Yeah. 
What do I, yeah, I mean, I don't I, know. Yeah. I've never been that kind of, I've never really objected to um, sameness. I'm not homophobic in that way. I mean, I, I'm okay with homo. I mean, I think, you know, I think, and I think, and I have a, you know, I suppose one of the, I suppose, I suppose some of what this kind of winds up being about is like how you look at, um, how you look at photographs of say the seventies we're kind of talking about late seventies say in black and white. I don't know, you see things as sort of frozen and then you realize there are slippages, you know? I suppose the clones that I know in like the world that I'm in are these very kind of more like circuit queeny. Oh, contemporary ones? Clones. Yeah, contemporary I'm wondering ones? about, yeah, yeah, the contemporary clone, I think of as like buff, traditionally handsome, probably yeah. white circuit queenie like very masculine and could adapt if necessary um in a straight world oh. and probably does economically speaking and that's how they can afford to go on circuit cruises right we call them happy gays like like when 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 uh, okay i think this is what you're talking about then i told i mean maybe is that like a kind of um constant infuriating display of success Be because you know what I picture when you're talking about that sort of <laughs> identity group I mean no judgments but is like six of them in a row on a beach yes. like having a photograph on wherever you know wherever that used to go up on Facebook or wherever like that I don't know you know and it and it does feel like <laughs> they do kind of they are they are that kind of a contemporary clone uh, I wrote this quote down. It's yeah, it's from page 16. Um, uh, healthy looking men with neat beards and t-shirts with social media slogans, uh, parentheses, hashtag mask fag, uh, the type famous and I call happy gays. Yeah. 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 It is. It's true. But, but, but we're so judgmental on each other. I think I that know. like, these are the kinds of things that, um, <laughs> that people might not realize is that we're really, people are judgmental about like where you stop shaving yes. your beard at your neck because there is i mean i i'm a, i i'm a lover not a hater but there is a very particular type of gay man who like has a beard that's like has a very abrupt like over the adam's apple cutoff point to their beard it's crazy i like judge different dating apps by like the type of ways that men have fades on their hair and i'm like oh no that is like such a chelsea looking haircut you know it's like so i i agree with you like i am so in on the uh the competition but um, that's that's also why we need to get back out uh, into like public space because you know when you're on apps like man you probably totally miss like yeah you miss serendipity and like just like somebody who surprises you somebody who's like you know i don't want some the thing about the thing about meeting people on apps i think is it's like i think it can you can detect each other's sense of humor like i love a sarcastic chatter um but but in but there's a and but you meet this kind of curated person of your you know you meet me you meet their own hype and it's like also, you you like the dick pics? I don't know. What do you think of dick pics? It's fine. 
Like, it's more about, like, the actual dialogue. Like, last night I was, like, sharing pictures with someone and I was walking home in the cold and he was uh, asking me to send him pictures, like, in public. That was exciting, but just, like, in and of themselves, it's like, okay, yeah. I think I just I just like the idea that well first of all you know I like the idea that maybe your your encounter isn't completely phallocentric or whatever like that but I like the idea that like it's a surprise and maybe it's a pleasant yes. surprise or maybe it is just like mediocre but it's cute or whatever it may be like you know right. I don't know it's it, And then there's a story if it's not cute too you know yeah <laughs> yeah or it's like you know yeah whatever it may be like I don't know that seems to be I remember like my sort of early sexuality as being really summed up by like the unzipping of a pair of jeans like that Mm. anticipation of like not and it's and it wasn't because I was like hoping for the best it was just because I liked unwrapping the package you know and Mm. that being a part of the process so but I think but I think in a broader like more just kind of like cultural level I think that's also the reason why we need to get out in terms of the fact that there might be somebody who oh, you know, oh gosh, like just like strikes you as a bit creepy, say for instance. And then, but you then you realize that, you, 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 know, you know, somebody next to you at the bar that strikes you as a bit sleazy, but then you realize that they have a great sense of humor and like, I don't know, the people can change their your mind. Mm. I guess, okay, this is like, well, first of all, how much longer do I have you for? I don't want to... Um over encroach i'm okay i'm okay i'm I'm, insanely i have a new york times interview later i don't know this is crazy i'm like but i'm fine i'm happy to be here okay well this will be my last question no Um, no it's fine (laughs) i my like hill that i'm dying on is that i feel like a lot of the current clones are now like have now hacked the system and now a lot of clones are becoming like TikTok stars. So a lot of these kind of like monolithic um, demons are now really cashing in because like they're traditionally handsome. They're able to um, appeal to like women, to to all kinds of people. We want to fuck them. So we're at their mercy. And now they can like be a TikTok comedian or whatever. Um, And like, I've talked about this a lot, but like someone that I used to have sex with now runs like a whole industry that's based on him um, dressing as different Disney characters, but like shirtless, which I celebrate and good for him for making money. But there is just this thing of like, these people who had all of this power within the community are now starting to like strike out onto a much bigger stage. And that's kind of like my worst nightmare. Yeah, but also, what about the people from outside the community, like the t- the teenage straight boys? I, there is, mm. I, I, I must admit, Instagrams. I'm not on TikTok. Are you? I am a nascent user, and I'm still okay. figuring it out. Okay, so I I do have Instagram, and Instagram feeds me like hot young guys doing dances on TikTok, and I suppose. Yes realizes that I'm thirsty enough that I've clicked on a couple of them that like, then they send me more, but like, they're crazy. There's, there are like, there's like an identical, a pair of identical twins who are so homoerotic together. And then, and I, and I kept thinking, 
I mean, maybe there's still like teenagers who live at home, but and then I thought, you know, this is like, it's weird that the cute frame, the, the frame of cuteness of TikTok makes this homoerotic, perhaps even under 18 sexuality somehow completely acceptable. And then, and it's, and it's blatantly, um, it's blatantly erotic. And then the last, then, then the last time I went on Instagram, I, these, these twins were um, sent my way again with their parents. Like they did, like you know how like people do that, like those those they like do it with their parents because they're because it's like charming that they like have families. Um, <laughs> I don't know where I'm going with this. I just think it's. I suppose, I suppose what I'm saying is that taboo keeps shifting in ways that are just so unpredictable. Like I never would have predicted that. Mm. that it it makes me uh, it makes but that, but it's like a branded tab, taboo it's like they th these these people and maybe their parents like there's this whole like cottage industry in that household of being kind of like oh you guys are like the sexy twins which is just weird right and like but mm. it makes me long for um tenderness Because that, because then, because then, when something is a, a bit um, taboo, like I don't know, uh, you know, smelling a dirty sock, like whatever it might be, that it's not, it's not for the consumption of thousands and thousands of people, but that 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 the the, the transgression that you've achieved together is consensual and adult and um, um, it's almost like you can, um, it's almost romantic. I, I, somebody asked me the other day if, if like about the romance in my book and I, and I, and, and also about kind of like, um, you know, I think, I think there's a love story at the heart of my book that's very pervasive you know I think it, it, there's a real love story yeah. at the heart of it but also that that love story is like sometimes shared like there are scenes where yeah. um some somebody you know uh, one of my one scene one of my favorite scenes of my own book well one scene that means a lot to me in my book is like a kind of um talk you know three 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 boys in a bed talking after getting together and it's so um, it's so meaningful to me. It's so particularly gay. I mean, every every sexuality will have their version versions, of course. But to me, it's this very that moment where maybe you haven't said that much to each other beforehand, but then afterwards, like everybody seems to be so garrulous. Like everybody's so talkative all of a sudden, and, and mm. like so, you know, I've just sat and listened to a boy talk and talk and talk and tell me about and then like they and then and then if they're younger than me they'll show me like things that are new like um you know when everybody was into that what's it called when you like make crackling noises is that asmr yeah those videos where you like you yes. know yes eat yogurt to make your other people feel soothed yes like, like i learned about those videos from a chatty boy after having sex 
because our inhibitions were down. We were still naked, maybe, or like partially, and like whatever. But I suppose, yeah. I suppose yeah. what I'm saying is you would never, that's like, that's a kind of like, that would be taboo to put on TikTok somebody being like, I don't know. Um, I had, I've actually had this happen twice where after I've had sex with someone, we've like a stranger, we've gotten into a fight about religion. Like we've gotten into oh. like a, a, a conversation and then kind of an argument and then like, a, you know, I'm going to go. But like it, it came out of this moment of like, oh, we're here together and we have this like moment of discovery and this yeah. moment of like opening and vulnerability, you yeah. know, that I don't think could happen otherwise. But not hate, you didn't have hate sex. No, which would have been hotter in retrospect. Yeah, but, but I've I, never had that. I know. I don't either. think. Yeah. I don't know. Well, I have. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, no, it wasn't that. It was just this moment of like, yeah, a tenderness and an opening that I don't think we'd be having that conversation otherwise. Mm -hmm. you know? So I see what you mean. You can't like that, that can't, that, 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 um, that can't. Uh, does TikTok have a, a, a limit of like how? long those videos are yeah i think they're a minute i just you know i just really like to to be in to, to be i don't know i mean i, I suppose it's like yeah I, I think I think well the reason I I started thinking about this is just I mean I I do believe that there that there's a public that we gays share with each other for a reason because like there are things mm. to share I mean but yeah but yeah. I think what we're talking about is something different which is like branding yourself mm. right did you see that right. article on on um on in the New York Times called everyone on everyone on TikTok is gay. That is kind of like these these kind of cases I'm talking about where it's like, yeah, it's straight, you know. It's wild. It's yeah, I, I, I that I'm like, let's see. I wonder what that's going to look like in two years. I mean, who knows? You know, the. <laughs> I don't know. I've I've no I have no internet speculations. I don't think, except for the fact that I think people might get tired of it. Yeah, I think so too. Um, which do is you okay. Limit, I think it can integrate. Do you limit your internet? Your do you limit your internet? Internet. You know, I do, but I think that comes out of shame. I truly, I've been thinking about that lately. Like for me, there's this like mania and panic when I'm on Instagram and stuff that I, I sometimes wonder if it's based on shame of me being like, you're out too, you're, you're, you're putting yourself out too much. You're being seen too much, that sort of thing. Um, oh. So there's that aspect, but yes, I do try to limit because, um, I, I mean, I think it's amazing and there's like so much possibility there and you know, I'm going to be sharing this interview on Instagram and that's incredible, but it's mm. also, it does feel like, like the harsh light of day or something or overexposure in this very like uh, calcifying way sometimes. 
Um, and maybe I don't feel comfortable enough with myself as I am in this moment to like be seen and laminated. Uh, in, in oh yeah, form. laminated. Yeah. I mean, are you feeling that as you're doing all of this press for this book? Laminated? Mm. Well, I mean, you know, it's just, it's nice to be able to have a chance to meet people and talk. But I, yeah. but I do, but it is, but it does. I'm, I am a quite a private person. I think, I think I didn't realize that until like we were talking, you know, the, the book is being released on a bigger, a larger scale than I ever envisioned. And I, it's not like the hugest thing in the world, but it's, but it's bigger than I thought it was going to be. And so I do feel a little bit exposed, mm. but I think also, that would take some adjustment and and when you know you you just you it's different isn't it for like just like being being in real space and feeling the wind on your air i mean I, you know maggie nelson has such a low internet presence and i was she, yeah I was trying, I was trying to like, you know, when you're kind of a bit like, oh, I'm caught in this, like, who do I look to, to like, we'll figure out like, what is going on, like that. And I, um, and I thought, you know, I don't think Maggie Nelson is on like, I'm not on Twitter. I don't think she's on that, any, any of that kind of stuff. So I like sort of Googled something like Maggie Nelson plus internet. And it was like there, right there, like in, a, in, a, in an interview that came up that she was like, I think when the internet came out, I decided I didn't like it. So I didn't join. <laughs> and I and just- she is like the only cool person. Like she's the yeah. only person who has that level of cool where it's like, oh God, that's so chic, you know? Because, and I, well, what I found myself envying when I read, I was like, oh yeah, so she didn't join. And then I was like, but I just started thinking about all the things that she gained gained from that. Like mm. her, like her time with her kid isn't like a photo shoot. Or anything about her day is like, it's like, it's almost like she's, she's claimed, she's claimed time for herself, I suppose. Yeah. Right. Or And I think what I enjoy and admire in uh, both of your writing, I would say, is that um, it is not really takes, it's not really reactions or responses to anything. It's more um, kind of collecting musings, ideas, feelings, mm. recollections, and putting them in a larger framework. But uh, what I admire about you and her is I do feel like a lot of the way the discourse works, which I do think it's morphing, like uh, I do think it, it's it's going to, to change, but it is very much like even yesterday, Rush Limbaugh died. Everyone I knew needed to have a perfect tweet about Rush Limbaugh dying. Mm. What I enjoy about you and Maggie Nelson is there is this idea of like, zooming out taking time and kind of collecting rather than yeah. having an answer or a response to any one thing in particular i i and i'm also just not that connected to celebrity death hmm. every once in a while there's one that feels like for some reason, I don't know why, but for some reason the other night I thought about Philip Seymour Hoffman and it made me feel moved. But I but I don't think that's 
um, that I, I I don't think that I, it's going to make me sound really callous. It just seems like their own death and not mine. I suppose that's what I'm totally. saying. I feel like I don't have any ownership over it. Like when David Bowie died, I, <laughs> my partner was like, do you remember when, when David, the year that David Bowie died and everyone was like, that was the worst year ever. And it was like, but then since then it was been like, <laughs> whatever, like Trump antics and pandemic and all this kind of stuff. I mean, rest in peace, um, David Bowie. But um, I think I want to give those, I think, yeah, I want to give those people their own to let them die like a cat does. Like, you know, when a cat goes and yes. like when a cat knows it's going to die, so it goes and um, finds a place, you know, in the backyard of the house or whatever and, and does it in private. It is kind of like, I mean, but yeah. But also, I think like that. the relationship with any art or music is totally holographic and like, you uh, might yeah. connect with a David Bowie album at a different period in your life, but when he dies, the idea that you're supposed to be like so in tune and connected and have these feelings that you're able to like sum up uh, immediately, I think is inauthentic. But yeah, maybe like maybe 10 years ago or 10 years from now, you'll reconnect with the song of his and feel this like deep pang, but totally, um, yes, yes, that can't be like summoned up totally. I agree. But I mean, you know, rest in peace to every every celebrity. <laughs> yeah, just to be clear about that, like we are with you. Uh, we're not taking a stand against that uh, actively on this podcast. Um, okay, well, I don't want to take up any more of your time. Uh, Thank I you. Did you really... see the Did you see the, the London sky go dark behind me while we talked? It was, it was amazing. There was like a twilight period where I could barely see you, but I could only see the kind of stark gray and now it's a beautiful beautiful blue oh you want to see oh wow i don't know how much you can see yeah oh yeah it's so lovely yeah we have some good skies um well i just want to say like thank you for talking to me you were so cool and i loved the book i really did and i'm just glad we got to talk about it this was so fun for me same thank you so much for having me yeah The Luminaries is made with love in New York City. Consulting producer, Carly Hugendijk. Art by Greg Kozatek and music by Henry Kapersky. If you would like to book a reading, tarot or astro with me, David Odyssey, you can always email me, adavidodyssey at gmail.com. Subscribe, share, like, rate, etc. And of course, you can follow me on Instagram, david underscore odyssey. Thanks for listening. See you next Tuesday. Mwah.